Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. So you should already be in John chapter 1. Uh, guys, if you're just joining us, we're, uh, we've been in this series going through the Gospel of John, and we're five weeks in, and we've only gotten to verse 14, okay? So uh, this is going <laughs> to, if you're thinking, man, this is going to take a while, it will pick up, okay? Don't, don't, get, your, don't, don't get all worried, right? It's going to pick up soon, but it did take us four weeks to get 18 verses uh, done, so and that includes this week. So uh, John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're wrapping up the prologue of John 1 today, and we'll start in some of the content. But real quick, I want to just start off this morning by asking uh, a question. Well, who's the most famous person that you've ever met face to face? Sorry, who? Jimmy Fortune. Yeah, you're. Whew. I'm only 32. Okay, so I don't know. Yep, still don't know. <laughs> oh man, anybody else? Anybody else that I might know? Kathy? Who? Oh, yeah. All right. That's pretty famous. Guys, I I just want to start off by saying uh, the most famous person that I personally have ever met is a little guy named Kirk Cameron. You guys know him? Raise your hand if you know who Kirk Cameron is. So we were on a mission trip to Denver to help plan a church. We were on our flight back, and sure enough, Kirk Cameron was sitting just a few rows in front of us, didn't, uh, d- didn't even know why he would be doing that, going from Colorado to where we were in North Carolina. And, and uh, so our, our group leader went up and talked to him, and, and then we all felt more comfortable to go talk to him. And I went up and I talked to him, uh, kind of mustered up the gumption to do it. But you know what? I didn't have the gumption to tell him that I received my middle name because my mom admired him uh, back in the day, back in the 80s. Uh, so, so yes, my middle name is Cameron Scott Cameron Brud, um, but I got it from him, apparently. So uh, you, you guys know the old saying where you, you don't meet your heroes, right? Don't meet your idols because they'll do what? They'll disappoint you, right? If you ever meet someone in the flesh, right? They're, they're kind of better on TV almost in a way, right? There's, there's, there's nothing like being in the flesh, right? There's, there's something about it that can clarify the, the true nature of a person, can it not? For example, blind dates, right? How many of you have ever been on a blind date? I'm just, I'm actually kidding. Don't, <laughs> you don't have to. There's no shame in it, but I don't want you to feel like you have to out yourself in that way. But blind dates serve to really know how that person is, who that person is. So you hear all this talk about that person, right? You hear people talking like, hey, your best friend, oh, he's such a, he's such a good person. Oh, she's so great. And then you show up and you really, in the flesh, find out how weird they are. Uh, you find out that their profile picture is like, not what they look like in person. Uh, you find out that they've got some weird habits, like they all of a sudden just reach across the table and grab some of your french fries. Joey doesn't share food, right? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so <laughs> either way, there's this sense where we need to be in person. We need to be in the flesh. If we're actually going to be able to know the true nature of a person, and, 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 and we, we noticed that in the last two years when we've done church online, Right? It got rid of all this, right, and, and put us behind screens, and really, goodness, you, you guys had to learn a new pastor on a TV screen. That didn't work. There's something, something different about it. There's something that can disclose the nature of a person whenever they're in the flesh. 
And today we're going to find out that God himself, in one of the most dynamic efforts of self-disclosure that he's ever made throughout all the timeline of history, that God came in the flesh. In other words, just real quick, if you want something to write down as a big point for the morning, we're going to find out that Jesus himself is saying, I am God in the flesh. Can you say God in the flesh with me? One, two, three. God in the flesh. As today, we're going to have tons of references to the Old Testament, so you're going to, we're going to be bouncing back and forth. You're not going to have to turn there. I'll have it up on the screen, but just keep in mind that we've got, we've got the whole narrative of Scripture that we're really going to be exploring this morning. And one of the things that we're going to notice is that all the Old Testament is culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. So I don't have a special outline for you for those type A people. I don't have anything in alliteration for you. I'm sorry. Uh, We're just going to let the word stand by itself and do its thing, okay? Speaking of which, verse 14 started off with what? The word. The word became flesh. This is the first time the word showed up since verse 1, right? He's been called all sorts of things since then, right? But the word himself, it's the first time since verse 1. And when we're talking about the word, words are usually like what I'm using right now, my vocal cords, but I'm speaking in immaterial concepts, right? What I'm saying is not a physical hard thing that's entering your ear. It's something immaterial in one sense. But here we have the word taking on the material, We have the word taking on flesh. The word flesh here means this stuff, right? Like the human body. He took on humanity, everything about humanity apart from our sin. Cool beans, right? So what? He became flesh. What's the big deal? Some of you might be thinking. Well, let me put this this way. If we don't grasp the identity of who the word is, then this just is nonsense. Okay, whatever. But when we fully grasp the identity of who this word is, this is going to be one of the most stupendous facts about our faith. So let's just recall real quick everything that we've learned about who this word is just in our prologue, just in the first 13 verses of John 1. So first off, we found out the word is the expression of God. He is God speaking to us. We also find out that this word was in the beginning with God before all things were created, which means he was pre-existent, right? He was pre-existent. And then we also found out that this word was God himself. He was distinct from God, but was God. In other words, everything that we know about God from the Old Testament is true about this word. And not only that, but this word is is uncreated, yet he created all things. Everything that came into existence came so through this word. And not only that, but we see in verse 5 that life is found in this word. We also see that light emanates from this word and conquers the darkness. We see that this word shines its light in the darkness and nothing can overcome it. It conquers all. We found that this word is the true light that gives light to everyone. And we also found out that this word, if it's received, gives you the right to be a child of God. So this is the very word that we've been talking about the whole time that took on flesh, the God expressing, the pre-existing, the all-creating, the light in life giving, the darkness overcoming, humanity regenerating word. He took on humanity. He donned flesh. Now look at what the apostle Paul says when he expounds on what this means in Philippians chapter two. It says, This word, or Jesus, who existing in the form of God, 
pay attention to that, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be, some translations say grasped, but it more likely means exploited or plundered for your own good. Something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant or slave, which would be us, slaves to sin, taking on the likeness of humanity. So the word who was God condescended, emptied himself of all his radiant glory, and put on the likeness of humanity and came as a man. Guys, this is what, do you know what the theological uh, word for this is called? It's called the what? The incarnation. Can you say that? One, two, three. Incarnation. It's from the Latin. It means incarnate. It means in the flesh. Guys, we sing about it every Christmas, right? Look at this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Guys, the word which finally gets connected to Jesus Christ later on in verse 17 here. This word who is God, putting on flesh, is God with us. It's God becoming man, the incarnation. In fact, this is what's called a core doctrine of our faith. This is something that's essential for us to believe, right? It's part of our orthodoxy. Some theologians call it a border doctrine. In other words, if you don't believe this, you're not in, you're out. But this doctrine wasn't meant to divide. It was meant to let us stand in awe of God. In fact, 1 John 4 really talks about how this concept that God, Jesus is God in the flesh is, a, is a, um, a way to test whether the Spirit of God dwells in someone, if they believe it. So in other words, if you're not convinced that this is true, then you're not believing the gospel. The Creator became like His creation. God's self-expression has become flesh. But why? So what? Yeah, he, he became flesh, but why? why? Why was this such a big deal for us? Well, you got to think about it. Put in the context of millennia of God revealing himself at different times and in various ways through different means, showing people what he's like, showing people who he is. So why would he need to come in the flesh? Well, I've kind of understood the answer uh, from, from uh, the needs that have come out of caring for our little dog named Pippa. This is my family, and in that, in that center is a little puppy named Pippa. Can you say hi, Pippa? I know she won't talk back. Um, Pippa, obviously, is a Yorkshire Terrier. She's a Yorkie, and, and she's a rescue puppy that we, that we found uh, off the streets, um, we rescued her, and, and uh, we've had her since, like, early last summer, and, and she requires a little bit of maintenance, right? Not too much, a little bit, a little bit of uh, maintenance here and there. She, she needs frequent walks. She needs some baths. She uh, needs her throw-up cleaned up every now and then. She needs food and water, I think, right? Now, when I'm home, I try to help out as I can. Caitlin's kind of the master mom behind her care, but when I, I'm at home, I'm, I'm trying to make myself available, and you would think, you would think in view of all the energy and all the effort and all the finances that I expend for her care and nourishment, that Pippa would at least be grateful? Nope. Not a bit. Guys, every time I come home from work, every single time I walk in the door to a room in our own house, if she's in it, she's terrorizing me. 
She barks at me as if I'm some threat to her, right? When I take a step towards her to just kind of like love on her, she runs away. When I call to her and say, hey, Pippa, let's go for a walk. Or when I say, hey, come, come, I want to snuggle, right? She just cowers under a bed instead. So no matter what I do, I've been trying for almost a year now, I cannot convince her of my true concerns and motives. It's just not working. To her, I'm too large. To her, I'm, I'm, uh, my actions are too incomprehensible. To her, my acts of care seem cruel. And my attempts to be loving to her, she sees as terrifying. You know, it would really help if I, um, if I could become a dog and talk to her in her language and help her to understand really who I am. You know, kind of like indognate instead of incarnate, indognate. You see what I'm going? You see the relation? You see the relation? You see, God cared so much about us knowing him truly, that we would know his concerns, that we would know what's on his heart, that we would know his desires, his character. He cared so much about that he became one of us and communicated in the best way possible, in the flesh. I don't know about you, but that's pretty scandalous. You know what's crazy is he didn't just take on humanity. He didn't just take on human flesh and stay where he was. He actually came into his creation. Look at what verse 14 continues to say. The word became flesh and did what? I need some response, people. And dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the Greek word skino, skino. And it means that he pitched his tabernacle. He pitched his tent and lived among us. So immediately you and I should start thinking, wait a minute, and I've heard that word before, tabernacle. Where does it come from? It comes from the Old Testament. When Israel had been set free from slavery to Egypt, they were out in the wilderness. God made a covenant with them. And part of that covenant was that God was going to dwell among his people, right? Which is an incredible thing. But he required in the covenant that the humanity make a tent of meeting or a tabernacle for him to dwell in. And it was a portable tent. It would move as they would move, go where they would go. But it allowed his people to be welcomed into his presence. <laughs> this is the infinite, holy, all-consuming God dwelling among us. This is God in the flesh moving into the neighborhood and throwing an open house party. For everyone to come. Guys, God has taken an incredible amount of initiative and he's gone to an incredible amount of lengths to make himself known to us, to show us his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Continue on in verse 14. What does it say? And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only from the Father. Guys, the word glory here is dealing with the visible manifestation of God's self-disclosing, right? You want to know who I am? When I show you, that's my glory. And so we, we see Jesus here. We, we observed Jesus' glory, the Word's glory. 
And scripture talks about how we see it in his signs, right? We see it in his wonders and the miracles that he worked. But actually, the book of John points to the most glorious thing about Jesus being his death on the cross and resurrection. That his, his betrayal, his criminalization, his beating, his death, and his resurrection were the most glory that we've seen about God. It's ironic then that through suffering we see glory. <laughs> Let's keep going. In other words, we're seeing this glory about Jesus. But then what does he say? We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only from the Father. In other words, the same glory we see in Jesus is the same glory that we see in the Father. And guys, we should, we should, we should be connecting this to something, hopefully in our minds, that we studied like almost two years ago back in 2020, right? We see Moses uh, get to go and experience God. We see Moses on the mountaintop asking to see God's glory. God saying, yes, but it's going to be limited, and I'll show you my glory. In Exodus 33 and 34 is where we were. Moses asked, God grants and lets him see his glory. And it's limited, but, but one of the most important things about that was what God said. Not just what was seen. Because this is what God said as the Lord passed by Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Hmm. Abounding in faithful love and truth. Guys, the word faithful love here is the Hebrew word chesed. You want to try that? Chesed. You got to get the Get some water in your throat. It's chesed, and, and it means gracious love. In other words, it's an unmerited kind of love. It's undeserved kind of love. In other words, it doesn't consider anything about you. It itself is motivated to love unconditionally. And then we also see the word truth, faithful love and truth. The word emet, right? It means faithfulness. It means truth in different ways. In other words... The glory revealed to Moses on that mountaintop in Exodus 33 and 34 in the proclamation of the glory of God is characterized by this ineffable grace and truth. Wait a minute. Shouldn't we then see if this is the characteristic of God's glory on that mountaintop? If we see that glory in God, shouldn't we also see grace and truth in the one sent by God to be the self-expression and the word made flesh. Shouldn't we see that? Wait, oh, yep. That's exactly what we see. You see that in verse 14? And we observe his glory, glories of the one and only from the Father, full of what? Say it loud, people. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. In other words, the Father and the Son share the same glory. They're both full of grace and truth. Let's take a second and talk about grace. Let's first go there. You know, what's crazy is that grace is a summary term here, but nowhere else in the book of John does it show up. It's not a key theme for the author of this book. Uh, it is a key theme of the gospel. So here's the only time you'll see the word grace in this gospel, and yet grace itself seems to be one of the most unique characteristics at the heart of our Godhead. At the heart of the triune God, there's a, there's a story told about a, a British conference that was held of comparative religions, and, and experts from all around the world came together to debate if any 
belief that was unique to the Christian faith. They were trying to figure out what's unique about Christianity compared to everything else. So they began eliminating all the different possibilities, right? The incarnation, well, you know, there's other religions that had different versions of God's coming in the flesh. Greek mythology does, right, sometimes. Resurrection, well, again, we see some people coming back from the dead in certain religions, sure. So the debate continued and continued until a little guy named uh, C.S. Lewis walked in wandered into the room, and he said, what's all the rumpus about? I don't know if that's actually what he said. I'm just quoting. What's all the rumpus about? And he heard in reply that the colleagues there were discussing, debating Christianity's unique contribution to the world's religions. Lewis just instantly responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Now, after some discussion, the the conferees came to an agreement right? They looked at this, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge. No strings attached seems to go against every, every instinct in the human notions. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenants, right? The Muslim code of law, all of them offer a way to earn approval, Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. (laughs) Jesus is full of this grace. He's full of it. Friend, do you realize that even on your worst day, even if you're thinking, man, I've royally screwed this up, I've messed up in a worse kind of way, you don't have to go to God with a scarcity mentality. You don't have to go to God thinking, ah, man, I've messed up, and and I don't know if that's going to be enough grace for me. I don't know if you're going to continue to love me, even if I continue in this habit, even though I don't want it. Won't your grace run out? (laughs) Nah, not in the slightest. No, Scripture tells us that our Savior is full of this grace and truth. In fact, Scripture says that he's got immeasurable stockpiles, riches of grace. He's just waiting to show us, guys. So he's well-stocked on grace, even though we might in the world be familiar with a, with a low product output. So if you examine the grace on the shelves of Jesus' heart and you determine that you need more, don't worry. Ask to check for more in the back, and he'll come out with fresh stockpiles of it. There'll be loads more waiting for you. Oh, and his supply chain won't ever be cut off because, you know, he's got the character of the infinite God backing him. He is full of grace. And he's also full of truth. Not that truth itself is a concept outside of Jesus in a sense, but but that Jesus himself is truth. Remember what he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He also says, like, if you remain in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we have this Jesus who's full of grace and full of truth. Why do we need Jesus to be full of truth? Why do we need Jesus to be full of truth? Well, think of it this way. No matter who you are or where you're from, no matter what your background is, you always live out of the things that you believe. Every time. You always live out what you truly believe. Everything that you feel, everything that you do is ultimately rooted deep down from what you believe is true. That's at the core of who you are. But you and I have to admit, is everything that we believe truth? Yes or no? No. 
We don't always believe rightly, do we? And sometimes, most of the time, when we don't believe rightly, we wander off into sorts of brokenness and sin. But no, we, when, we, when we grasp what is really true, then goodness, we find ourselves walking in a life that's pretty close to Jesus's, because he was the truth. He is the truth. And another thing, real quick, all truth is God's truth, is it not? You understand what I mean? All truth, everything that is really true is God's. Which means in order for us to live lives in any way that can be considered excellent and considered according to the gospel, it means that you and I have to really know what's true. And all of that is found in Jesus because he's full of it. That sounded bad. Oh, he's just full of it. No, I don't mean that. He is full of grace and truth. Amen? Let's keep booking it. Guys, that was just verse 14. Oh boy, I got a lot of, all right, let's go. Book it, book it, book it. Verse 15, ha, here we go. Verse 15, John testified concerning him, the word, and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Let's pause there for a second. This is John the author talking about John the baptizer, Johnny B for short, has, that he's been testifying about this person, this Jesus, saying that he ranks before him because he existed before him, even though he came to, into humanity after him. All right, easy enough. Jesus comes before everyone else, and John the baptizer was convinced of it. And we'll hear more about his ministry and his convictions in weeks to come. Verse 15 is done, wrapped up, enough said. Verse 16, told you we were booking it. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, guys, verse 16. Verse 16 makes an, an incredibly heartwarming, like unicorn and rainbows verse, doesn't it? We have all received grace upon grace. Amen? We've all received it. Those of us who are in Christ, we've seen grace upon grace. And it, oh, it just keeps coming like wave after wave crashing over me, right? It's great. It's a good verse. While that's true, don't get your paintbrushes and your canvases out to get some wall art up with this verse. That's not exactly what it means. When you're looking at the word grace upon grace, the word upon doesn't mean on top of with addition. It actually means in place of. It's auntie, the Greek word auntie. It means in place of grace, in place of grace, which connects us then to verse 17. It's implying that we were under one kind of grace and we've received another kind of grace. Look at verse 17. Because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about grace in place of grace, we're talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. We're talking about the old Mosaic Law and the new covenant of grace. Grace in place of grace. Are you tracking with me there? Now I want to pause here and say that there's some notion out there that says that one of the things Jesus came to do was to wake, make war against the law. Like Jesus came to abolish the law. Like the law was bad. It's this big bad monster. All it did was condemn us. It didn't do anything better for us. And there's this notion that Jesus came to just wipe it all out. Uh, uh, mm, nope, that's, that's not true. Guys, the problem for Jesus in this gospel is not with Moses and the law. The problem was with the disobedient Jews who misused Moses and the law. You understand the big difference, right? The law itself 
was considered a grace of God. In other words, all those commands that we see in the Old Testament were considered a grace of God. They were good gifts. They were act of love from God. The, the Apostle Paul, just read Romans 6, 7, and 8. My goodness, you'll find out. Like, how would we know how deep our sin goes apart from the law? We wouldn't. We wouldn't even know what sin is if we didn't have the law. We wouldn't know what it means to covet or that it's evil and wrong or to not commit adultery. We wouldn't know these things. Not only that, but how would we even come to grasp the depths of the grace that's required for our pardon apart from the law? We wouldn't. All that to say, the law itself was a grace of God. It was a grace, and it looked ahead to a better covenant, a more excellent covenant, one that would fully reveal the heart of the Father being full of grace and truth, which is exactly who Jesus Christ is. Now we're at verse 18, and we're about to wrap up this prologue. Let's read it. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Guys, throughout Scripture, there's been several times where people have come to encounter the living God. They've seen God, and it records it. They've seen God, but you know, one of the things you always, always find with it, a little caveat, a little small text You'll see something like in Isaiah 6, Isaiah, he falls down on his face. He says that he's seen the Lord, and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. But really, what was the focus of his gaze was the, the hem of the train of the robe of God. We also see Moses on the mountaintop, right? Back in that instance earlier we mentioned in Exodus 33 and 34 where he got to see God's glory and God passed by him. But what did Moses really get to see? The back. I don't know about the hind parts. I don't know what to right? All he got to see was the afterglow or, or, or the back of God as he passed by. Moses wasn't allowed to even see God. God himself says that humans cannot see me and live. So the, the consistent assumption throughout all of the Old Testament is that no sinful human being can actually see God and continue to breathe. And that's carried through to right here. No one has ever seen God. And yet, and yet, the one and only, the monogenes, the one and only who is the Son, the Word made flesh, who is himself God, as we hear echoed from verse 1, who is at the Father's side, in other words, the bosom of God, he's in the heart of God, this word has revealed God. This word has made God known. Now, when we hear the word revealed, what do we think? When we think of revealed, it's like there's something behind the curtain. He's like, he's like you ready, you ready? Woo! Right? Ta-da! There's God! Revealed! Is that what we're talking about here? No, Jesus isn't that kind of magician, right? The Greek word here is exegasato. It's where we get our English word exegesis, which is what I'm doing right now. 
or hopefully, <laughs> right? Lord willing, please help, right? It is the foundation of preaching, exegesis. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it's got the context of one person relating truths to another, using words. So this is saying, he who is the word, Jesus of Nazareth, has exegeted God. He's come to exegete God. He's related to us the heart of the Father. And isn't that what exactly is meant when Jesus is said that he is the word? He relates, he makes known to us. Like Jesus isn't just some simple prophet who talks about God. He is himself God, disclosing the very nature and character of God. Which is why Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the who? Father. There's this quote from a guy named C.H. Dodd, and he said this. As Jesus gives life and is life, as he raises the dead and is himself the resurrection, as he gives bread and is the bread, as he speaks truth and is the truth, so as he speaks the word, he is the word. Amen? More specifically, Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. Come to you. I've moved into the neighborhood. Can you hear that? And that, brothers and sisters, wraps up the prologue of this gospel. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to find a way, I want to kind of figure out a way for this to land into our lives, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I think there's a, a, a way for it to, to land, and, and I was praying through this this morning. Um, guys, from, from my uh, time in ministry, in my experience, I, I've learned enough to know that there's a possibility that there's some people in here who may have a, tum, a tough time with this concept. They may not know it, but they have a tough time. What we've learned today is that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh, meaning this, that the same God that we saw throughout the whole Old Testament is the deity Jesus is by nature. Everything that's true about God in the Old Testament is also true about Jesus. And everything that's true about Jesus is also true about the God that has created all things. But I think that may be hard for some of us. Because we, we read about the God of the Old Testament and we get hung up on how we interpret what God did in the Old Testament. We, we, we sometimes look at this God of the Old Testament and we think, man, he really likes this whole wrath thing and judgment thing. My goodness. And so what we do is we discard the God of the Old Testament and we focus only really on Jesus. You know, Jesus is our homeboy, right? He's the one we're cool with. Because, you know, he is love. He's accepted everyone. And he talks about the flowers of the fields. There's also this sense where you can have this understanding that the father is primarily about justice and the son must be about love and forgiveness. In other words, we make this intentional division between the natures of the persons of the Godhead, father, son, and spirit. Friends, you, you, you can't do that. 
Nowhere in scripture are we ever given the space to divide the natures of the Father from the Son. There's no space in scripture for us to to divide the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New. There's no space for that. Jesus is God in the flesh. All that God was in the Old Testament is all that Jesus is in the New now, obviously, there's, there's a personal distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, the persons of the Godhead, but their character is the same. All that Jesus is in this gospel is all that God has been from eternity past and is all the Spirit is that is dwelling in you and me. So the same gracious God that decided to tabernacle among the Israelites back in the Old Testament, is the same gracious Jesus that condescended to move into our neighborhood and to make known to us his Father. And it's the same gracious spirit that's dwelling now in you and me. It's it's the same love that impelled Jesus to lay down his life for our forgiveness. It's the very same love that impelled the Father to offer up his own son as a sacrifice. And it's the very same love that impelled the Spirit to give you and I the kind of faith to even believe such things. Brothers and sisters, we don't get to divide the Trinity out and divvy out the characteristics to each one. Jesus is... God in the flesh. If you've done something like that, then I'm guessing intimacy with the Father is difficult for you. I'm guessing intimacy in your relationship with God has been difficult. And so my challenge simply today is to not unhinge ourselves from the God of the Old Testament, but in fact to fully receive Jesus That Jesus is God incarnate. That he is God in the flesh. And all that Jesus is, the Father is also. Can you receive that today? If you've had a tough time with that, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to, to minister to you. Maybe clarify some things. I realize there's some tough things in the Old Testament. But goodness, this has been the God, the rock of ages, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we see in Jesus, we see in the Father. And what we see in the Father, we see in the Spirit. What we see in the Spirit, we see in the Son. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.